Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of In Depth with Seth and Beth. I am Beth Hoffman Faith, Minister for Congregational Care and Worship at Plymouth Congregational Church. And as always, I'm delighted to be with my friend and colleague, Seth Patterson, as we delve a little deeper into what was preached and said the previous Sunday. So we're looking at Sunday, November 15th, 2020. The sermon was entitled, Our Calling Has Just Begun, and the text was the parable of the talents from the 25th chapter of Matthew, verses 14 through 30. And Seth was our esteemed preacher. Yes, so glad esteemed. to be with you, Seth. Hi. Hi. My name is Seth, and this is my first time having one of my sermons be the subject of this inquiry. Bring it on, Beth. <laughs> I am so ready. <laughs> Do you want to introduce yourself in any other way? Why not? My name is Seth Patterson. I'm the Minister for Spiritual Formation and Theater at Plymouth Church at the corner of Nicolette and Franklin in Minneapolis. Okay, Seth, so I have lots of questions. You gave us many things to think about, and you began your sermon in a way that we haven't since the beginning of the pandemic, or maybe ever. But can you talk a little bit about why you said what you said at the beginning of the sermon, maybe give our listeners a little bit of context and talk a little bit about why you made that decision? Absolutely. So I began with two, I think, pre-sermon announcements. And one was a, like a public service announcement, and one was more of an acknowledgement. The first one was about COVID. And as we internally to Plymouth have been talking a lot about COVID and our own protocols and how we can keep ourselves and our building and all the people who may come to it safe, it occurred to me that we had never said anything from the pulpit about that. And in this moment, when when public health officials are, are talking about uncontrolled spread and likening it to our house being on fire, it seemed like maybe it was time to say something from that space. And then the second thing I said was, uh, I did land acknowledgement, uh, an indigenous land acknowledgement. And it's the uh, first time I believe that we've done that from our pulpit. Uh, it maybe has happened. It's the first time I've done it. And I've wanted to in the past, and this is the moment to felt uh, right to me. So both of them were things that I felt I needed to say. Also, I wanted to use them as a example of where I went in the rest of the sermon about what do you do when you hear things you don't like? Yes, indeed. It was an excellent setup for an illustration within your sermon. One of the things that you said in those public service announcements was you talked about the gravitas that might be attached to the pulpit and what it might mean or change to either say something from the pulpit or hear something from the pulpit. Could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, a part of that is says probably more about me than than what I was trying to say. And I don't assume that I myself, Seth, carries a lot of gravitas, but I do think that there's a, there is a something about it being something uh, important being said from a pulpit in a time of a sermon. Now we do announcements from the pulpit and we pray from the pulpit, but there's something at least at Plymouth that gets attached to the sermon. Like something is an almost not said unless it's said in a sermon. Hmm. And so I wanted to, to attach the importance and the urgency of especially the COVID announcement to 
it taking place within the confines of a pulpit at sermon time. That's interesting. I wonder if our listeners have thought about that, that the significance of saying things in the space of the pulpit. I've been in other churches, served other churches in which I sometimes preached from the floor, in the midst of the congregation, sometimes from the top of the chancel steps, and then sometimes from the pulpit. And I, when I would make the choice to preach something from the pulpit, it was because the framework of the sermon required that in some way of me. Uh, yeah. Whatever I was going to say, the topic, the seriousness of it needed sort of the, the presence of the pulpit. And I would always say that to the congregation too. And, and you're right, there's something significant about the pulpit in Plymouth's beautiful sanctuary that I think has always sort of elevated the message in some way. But I, and not just the physical pulpit, but the, the pulpit as a tool of delivering a sermon. Okay, well, you made it very clear that you did not like this parable. It's awful. (laughs) In (laughs) fact, when you and I talked early last week, that was the first thing you said to me was, this is a terrible parable. (laughs) It is, and it rhymes too, a terrible parable. (laughs) In depth with Seth and Beth about a terrible parable. All right, so let's talk a little bit about this. Tell me about your strong reaction to this parable. Yeah, I read it. My immediate reaction the first time I read it is, what on earth is this ever going to teach anybody now? I would love to know what the context of this story was in pre-American capitalist society. Like, how could it be heard not through that speaker? But all I can hear it through is the speaker that of our life now, which is this very capitalist, uneven unequal 1% sort of world. And when you have, first of all, slave and master language, I struggle with in the Bible. And I know that slavery meant something different in the ancient Near East than it does to our American context, but it's still the same word we use. So I I wrestle anytime that comes in, like, what is that trying to say? And then- Which is why, if I could interject, that we often will use the translation from the inclusive language Mm -hmm. Bible, which is very careful with language and changes it much like you you used in in the way you read it before your sermon, um, using the words giver, I think, uh, of the talents and yeah. not using any of the master-slave language. Right. Sometimes leaning on servant instead of slave, because that was mm-hmm. probably in our American conception closer to what the relationship was, was a little bit more of a servant as opposed to how we see um, chattel bonded slavery of America. Uh, and then this idea of two people sort of cap, uh, use their money to make more money f- and they were, they were honored and celebrated. And then the one person, because he was scared of the landowner, because he knew the landowner was a cheat and a, and a liar, he reaps where he does not sow, decided to take the super safe way and not do anything and just held the money and then gave it back. And not only was punished himself and called a worthless person, it then is moralized at the end to say that all those who have much more will be given and those who have little, everything will be taken away. And I have such a hard time squaring that with the rest of the Gospels. I understand. It doesn't seem to match Jesus' prior and uh, concurrent messages at all. 
and, and it makes feels me wonder like, around the editing process <laughs> in the in these scriptures, right? It seems to me to be one of those things that was abused, that is used to justify abuse. I think a really common interpretation of this parable is to ignore that piece, ignore the ending, <laughs> yep. where uh, the one barrier of the talent will be thrown into the fires and they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, uh -huh. and instead focus on talent not in a monetary way, but in, in what we've been given, our inherent gifts and how we use them in the world. So yeah, except that's being, let's go out and make them multiply and give back and, and all those things. And which is lovely if that's what it meant, <laughs> but it doesn't. And it, and we take the, our, our concept of the, of talent from the economic monetary idea from before, not the other way around. A talent was the equivalent of like a lifetime's earnings for some people. So to get five lifetimes worth of earnings at once, it's winning the lottery. It's not, right, a, right. it's not about what we're good at. But people read this and don't know that, don't understand that. And so really we'll take the word talent as we use it today. Yeah. But what are you good at? And how do you make that multiply? Yeah, and if you don't make it multiply, then you will have loss and you will be worthless. Well, and the justification that I've probably have preached in the past and certainly have heard is that you're only hurting yourself when mm. you don't share the gifts. You become the lonely, isolated person and you create this after effect where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth because you have squandered what God has given you. That is a lovely message. Is it? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, to a degree, it's a lot lovelier than what the parable is actually saying. I really liked that you used your extreme discomfort with this parable as, as sort of your launching off place. It, it's where you began. Yeah. Um, and you moved into a really, for me, powerful revelation about what the talents or how you began to understand the talents only after you sat in your discomfort. And you talk about how all of us might react when we hear something we don't like, when we read something we don't like, when we're given information that doesn't sit well. And you had beautiful illustrations about your daughter and your spouse and you and how you all kind of handle news you don't like. But you talk about how that puts us in a, a different space. And you also suggest that being in an uncomfortable space is a step towards transformation. But you also make clear that there's a difference between an uncomfortable space and an unsafe space. I wonder if you might just say a little bit more about that. Yeah. As we talk about, I feel like a lot, all three of us from in our sermons about change, it's a pretty constant uh, conversation that we seem to all be bringing into the pulpit. Change is uncomfortable. Change is always, it might ultimately feel good, but in the act of it, it is often uncomfortable and disconcerting and we don't like it. Um, but change is inevitable. Change will happen whether we like it or not. Hmm. So avoiding the discomfort of change is often how we get stuck and and feel real discomfort because we're not allowing ourselves to do the change that was there. The, the piece about discomfort and unsafe is because I have come to the wondering that 
part of whiteness of which I am a participant and it is that is that we we are often the promise made to us in America as white people is that we can somehow avoid discomfort like we can set our set our lives up to not feel discomfort mm. and so when that is successful which it is for many people not all the time but at times so that when we do feel discomfort we think it's painful and i think that's a gift that people who we have marginalized through that idea of not having to be uncomfortable they carry discomfort in a way that we don't and they are often able to distinguish a difference between not being safe and not being un- not being comfortable that comfort is not an expectation and that's mm-hmm. not good i'm not saying that this is how it should be i i'm saying that we ha- we could learn something from the idea that we can be comf- uncomfortable yet safe okay thanks for expanding on that and again giving us something to think about as all of us who are white examine our privilege and our discontent with discomfort which this time is making us all open our eyes to i believe i hope so anyway me too So as you moved through this discomfort and sat with this parable, you came to kind of a new understanding. To me, this was like the pinnacle of your sermon. Do you want to tell us your new understanding as you approached this this parable? We did that whole series on parables in the before times. I don't remember when we did it, in before COVID. Uh, And in that, we often would play with where is God in this? Because so often the parables lead us down this path that God is the landowner, the rich person, the giver of all things, which would make sense as God is the giver of all things. But in this, that I, I wouldn't understand how that is the same God taught by the same Jesus that is in the rest of the gospels. And in, like many of the other parables, we started to play with the idea of, well, what if you put God in other places? So like when I did the parable of the lost sheep, God was not the shepherd. Maybe God was the lost sheep. Right. And it's worth it's, going to look for. And I did that too in the story about the landowner and the workers in the field. Exactly. Where was God? God was in the last one chosen, the last people picked. So the only way that I could preach on this authentically and, and with any amount of integrity without avoiding it, without saying, well, I don't like it, so therefore I'm going to go do something else, was to take the time to really sit in it and think, well, then where could God be in this that is meaningful? And the place that I landed, and this is just for me, it's not right, but it's how I make meaning out of it, is that God is the talents. God is the gift. And we either take that gift and multiply it, and it, which is similar to the idea we we're talking about earlier of taking our own talent, but rather the gift of God. Mm. We can expand and bring the gift of God out and make more of it, or we hide it away, we keep it to ourselves, we feel righteous with it and scared, and then we're done. Well, I thought that was a beautiful interpretation. And you move then into this understanding of calling. So if if God is in the talents and we are then encouraged, commissioned, charged to do something with these talents or to, to make, you know, the essence of God multiply in the world, this this is what we are charged to do, which might be one understanding of calling. Yeah. Um, 
when I read your sermon title before I heard your sermon, I wondered where you were going to go uh, with Our Calling Has Just Begun. And so would you like to comment at all about how that connection between sort of releasing God into the world and calling and maybe we are just at the beginning rather than in the midst or at the end of something? I've been hearing a lot in our political world and our in our world right now about the phrase, our work has just begun. And this is about healing and post-election and unity and all these things. And I'm tired. I don't want to do any more work. Mm-hmm. I am working somewhere between two and 25 jobs. It feels like I have a family. I have to take care of myself and work on myself. Like I am tired of doing work, but if I'm called to something, that's a different place where I can pull energy from. And if God is calling me to sit in the discomfort and learn from it and take then God out into the world, that's a different thing than saying, go work. Mm. And so part of it was just hoping that the change of phrasing would be reinvigorating. Cause I know a lot of people are just, we're tired. Work is yes. tiring. Calling can be energizing. Uh, calling can be energizing. I think that's a beautiful way to segue to an end here. Calling can be energizing. And that's, I know what we're all hoping for, well, for those of you who are listening, for the people in our community and beyond who are feeling a bit isolated in this time, lonely, wondering what the future holds, and maybe to kind begin to, to flip and change our understanding of words we use every day, like work or task, into calling might help indeed give us some energy. Well, Seth, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank this you. was fun. It's always fun. I want to give a shout out to Laura Caviani, who gives us the music to use at the beginning and end of this podcast. Thank you for listening. If you have not yet heard Seth's sermon, I invite you to go to Plymouth.org and click on the worship tab and you will see how you can either watch or listen to the worship from yesterday, November 15th, 2020. Until next time, we say take good care. May your calling have just begun. Be well.